0: Luke chapter twenty two, verses seventeen and eighteen, and we'll read those together, and then we will uh, we'll spend some time in these in this chapter. <coughs> excuse me. In verse seventeen, Paul writes, and he took a cup, and excuse me, Luke writes, and when he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, "Take this and divide it among yourselves." For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you and I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come and to share in your word. Father God, I pray, God, that I have prepared it rightly, God. I pray, God, that I have struggled with it because it has felt like such struggle. But I pray, Father God, that that struggle means something, Father. And that it will. I can come to this room and I can preach it to the best of my ability, Father, And that you will bless these words, Father, to not just just be a product of my labor, Father God, but for them to be a product, Father, of of your divine will, of your Holy Spirit, Father God, and and his work within our church, Father. And that you will fill the church, Father, with, with joy and fill the church, Father God, with power through them. And I also pray, Father God, deeply pray now, that God, you will also use these words or to call to to anyone who's lost who might be um, in our midst today father god that that they would know that they are beloved of you father and that your power father is is all father god on display in their salvation so father god i pray now for that god i pray lord that these words are humble and that they are without guile father but i pray at the same time that they are powerful father god that they come from you bless me father god as i deliver them father that I can keep myself to a minimum, and you to the maximum, Father God, I pray God now this in the name of Christ, amen, um, so again, let me explain something kind of as we start, and the explanation is this, and that is that when I started the last series, which was like six weeks ago about tithing and just giving in general, and I began this when I was what my desire was this, and this is just from prayer. And sometimes those are right, and sometimes, to be honest with you, I'm out to lunch. But what it did was these two things. And one was to take something that is, uh, folks, that we do all the time, and that, to be honest with you, we seldom think about or study about very much, Um, whether it's giving. We either give or we don't most of the time. We either do it faithfully or we're troubled about it, But we're usually not biblically troubled about it. We don't go back and pour over the scriptures and see where God is talking about things and why He wants us to do it. And in fact, oftentimes we'll do it, and as we talked about during that series, rob it of the blessing. Because while it might be monetarily faithful, it's not joyously done. So we miss the point of it. Because these things are like that, we oftentimes miss that point. I took the Lord's Supper, the communion service, because I think we do the same thing. I think we participate in it, we go through it. Occasionally, I'll preach about it. Occasionally, you'll think about it or study about it. For the most part, we always feel like we've got more important things to look at in the Scriptures than, than the, the, the bread and, and the wine, so to speak. We're Baptists. Um, in, our, in our services. We just don't think about it, we just do it. And when it's over, we don't think about it anymore. I wanted to not demystify it, but take us and say, God, show me God in it, in the depth of it, why this is so important that we do it all the time. Why is it so important that when it comes up, we, are, we ought to be thrilled by it, by being able to do it? In the very same way with, with, with Christian giving, the whole goal of that whole series was we're supposed to be thrilled by getting to do this. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be something we're joyous about. Well, with this the same way, we should be joyous about this. Now, the best way I can imagine to share it with you is this. Was I went back to that incident in the book of Luke. Use Luke's, Luke's gospel kind of as my primer for it. But what I did was I wanted to visualize it. Because when I visualize things within the pages of Scripture, they, they start to get to my heart in the way they need to. More often than not, I just tend to read myself into verses. Do you know what I mean? I look for blessings for Tony. And I know you do the same thing too. We tend to read sometimes the Bible like it was written by Hallmark. It's got these joyous little things that we own up. There it is. For that reason, we tend to read the fun things and not read the hard things. We've reimagined a God that just loves us and would never judge us. Which is totally out of line with the God of the Bible, who does both. Because he's, that's his nature. But the way I imagined it was this, if you want to help me visualize it for just a moment, just a moment before we preach this. The way, um, I imagined it was this. And that was what would happen if I was sitting there, right there, I mean, sitting right there at the table with my Lord. And then this happened. I'm sitting there at the table with my Lord. And of all things, he, he passes me the cup. He hands it to me. I, I don't know if the men who took the cup, and they, remember, they are, they are great men. The majority of them. I don't know if the men who took the cup thought back over that incident for years to come. I imagine they did. It was so important that Paul spends a significant amount of time writing about it. But what was it like for the Lord of the universe, the Creator God, the Savior of mankind, to reach out His hand and pass you something, give it to you? How struck would you be with its importance if that's what happens? So so I would say this, at the very least today, let's put ourselves in that mindset that today, listen to me, today, God is passing you the cup. It's not filled with Welch's grape juice the way we do it. It comes with every Bible verse about it. Do you understand? It comes with the weight of Scripture behind it. So how should we deal with the cup of Christ today? Now I said... It's a potent symbol of both suffering and triumph, because it is that, and we'll show you that. And it's a legacy for the church, which overcomes the world and is afflicted by the world. It is both those things. When you receive that cup, folks, when we get the cup, we get both the blessing and in many ways the challenge of living for and like Christ. Now there are a couple devils here, just in looking at the, at the Lord's Supper, I think we need to conquer before we go on. The first is ceremonialism. And what I mean is that that's the way we do it. We ceremonially do the cup. We have it when we have it. We vote on it, literally. We're going to do it certain times, it's in our bylaws, four times a year. Quarterly. I, mean, no offense, I guess it's okay that we vote on it, but what I'm saying is, it's probably nonsensical that you have to vote on it. When he tells us to do it in remembrance of him, he does not speak idly, right? So the fact that we do it comes with power from our God. Okay, do this. So our ceremonialism oftentimes robs things of their power. But now, there's another one, and I deemed it asceticism. And what I mean is this, that we're going to do it sometimes just because we kind of like it. Do you know what I mean? It kind of fits within our mindset. We think it's a beautiful ceremony. Now, I think that's the trap. It's, now, the first one, like I said, the church is in your notes. The church has already done that. We're already ceremonial about something that God died to infuse with power. But we can be ascetic about it because in our other ordinance, one of those other ordinances of the church, that would be marriage. We have become all ascetic about it. What I mean is this, is that people will spend years planning the perfect marriage, excuse me, the perfect wedding ceremony, and no time at all planning the perfect marriage. That is left up to chance. But the flowers and the music and the place, the venue, all that kind of stuff, I'll be honest with you, I have never had anybody come up to me before a wedding and ask me, Brother Tony, what does this mean or what does that mean? What are we really agreeing to? But I've been asked about daddy-daughter dances ten times, at least. I know it's a joke, but it's a level of our stupidity. We waltz into marriage as if it's easy, and anybody who's been married for five minutes will tell you it's incredibly hard. But see, our asceticism has robbed us of the mindset that would say, This is an important thing, and we better really be prepared for it. We try to fix marriages after they happen. Well, hey, let me tell you something. Once you're married, you're married. There's the fix. The fix is, you are stuck with each other in the eyes of God. There's your fix. That's it. There's the fix. It's the only way I can fix it. There's nothing else you can say. The preparation needs to be done in the years leading up to it, right? But we don't teach that. We spend more time worrying about the dress than we do worrying about the home. This is not just on on women. This is on men too. So the idea here that we have as we approach this is we better take gospel-centered things, uh, Brother Joe, gospel-revealing things, and take them incredibly seriously. Because human beings will colossally miss the point if we don't do that. We have to do that. So how do we do it? <clears throat> and as I said, some of these warnings have already been fulfilled. My goal here as with in understanding the Lord's Supper, is is going to be with everything else in the Bible, as best I can do it, is that we have a simple approach to the Scripture as we do to this particular point. But now listen, literalism is not enough because focusing just on that aspect, the literal aspect of what the Bible says, can lead us to ignore some of the deep truths which the account plainly teaches. So we can't just look at it literally. Because I'll be honest with you, if you go read about the cup and especially this verse. There are whole denominations that are fighting over whether you should have individual cups or one single cup. Not obscure denominations at all. And my response is, guys, you're you're, you're PhDs and you're missing the point. Jesus is not talking about whether you you should use one cup in the ceremony or not. Miss the point. So sometimes we, we get so literal we miss what God's trying to say to us. So I think Paul gives us kind of a model for understanding the Bible this way. So bear with me please, bear with me. First, he says this to the Corinthian church, the church he's training up, he writes multiple letters too. In 2 Corinthians 1.12 he says, For a boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we believe we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Now, here's the thing. Paul said, even though he's Paul, he's a genius of the scriptures. Paul is not high-minded when it comes to dealing even with the high-minded. And the Corinthians were totally high-minded about everything. Paul says, what? Simplicity, godly sincerity. So if we've got a goal here today in any of our beliefs, now look at me now, in any of our beliefs, it is simplicity and godly sincerity. We want to believe the simple gospel. Now I'm going to take those words to task here in a minute. We want to believe in the simple gospel. But now at the same time, at the same time, we want to believe in a sincere Gospel and demonstrate that in our sincerity, we are the demonstration of the faith in Christ every day for people to see. The apostle was intentionally rejecting the purposely convoluted thinking of the Greek philosophers that the Corinthians were in love with. No, no Hellenistic nonsense. Paul was saying, "Hey, look, you're going to believe it simply and not in that weird logical way." Simple, sincere testimony of the faith in Christ. The psalmist inspires in Psalm 119, 130. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Hey, look, we're the simple. And we want, Brother Mike, that simple understanding. I want to know the truth of it and I want to know how to live it. I don't need to know. A Ph.D. level. I need to know an everyday application to my life. Fair enough. Look, Paul's, this, this teaching in Paul and in the Psalms, it's an antidote to a preacher's tendency to make everything complicated. We can get so full of ourselves. So full of ourselves. We learn something new and we just, it's like a kid in a candy store. We're so, here you go, look at it. It's like, it's like when the piñata burst yesterday and we were so happy. A new thing. We, do we do that? Pastors tend to be overtly complex, even un- uneducated pastors like myself, un- overtly complex because, because we are learning all the time and we become a little proud of ourselves. But, listen to me, church members, many of which are casual, casual church members, Desire to make every truth easy to obtain. There's a difference. I am going to take you to task about the difference between simple and easy. Um, I will pick on Brother Joe again. Uh, Brother Joe, um, technically speaking, hitting a golf ball is a simple thing. But it's not easy, is it? And um, how long have you been playing, Brother Joe? Perfect at it yet? Never going to be right. Won't live long enough. Mechanically speaking, a very simple thing. But there's nothing easy about it. The gospel is incredibly simple. But it is never easy. You will never know the depth of the gospel if you don't seek God. Ever. Pastors here are going to strive for learned but accessible. Yeah, we're going to sound like we really prepared. I hope you're listening and saying, he really worked on this, because you know what? He really did. To the last possible second. Learn, but accessible. You can understand it. Also, members strive for deep understanding and sincere faith. You're not going to stay an inch, inch deep and mile wide. Because you know what? You'll drown in an inch of water. But you can't swim in it. But you can't swim in an inch of water. But you can sure enough drive it. We're going to seek God as hard as we can. I'm going to preach Him as hard as I can. These men are going to preach Him and you're going to seek Him. Because i tell you what, if you're not seeking Him, you're never going to find Him. Ever. Look, Paul uh, gave us this, you know, this kind of challenge in 2 Corinthians 11, 3, later in the chapter. He says, But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It's what we want here today sincere, pure devotion. It starts with the basics and it builds brick upon brick upon brick until it really grows into this great edifice of faith. That's what we want to see. He warns the Christians in Titus 3 9. He says, Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissenters and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. So the things we just simply avoid. Not the hard issues of the gospel. We'll stand up for life and we'll stand up for family and we'll stand up for everything. And we'll stand in this pulpit and we'll preach holiness in every aspect from your money to your free time. We'll preach that. You know why? Because the Bible doesn't give us any choice. We would be practicing pastoral malpractice in this pulpit if we don't preach exactly what the Bible says. But we're not going to dicker over words. We're going to preach the heart and soul, the meat and potatoes of what Christ died to make true. We're going to do it every time we come. Look, while our goal is pure and simple, biblically orthodox Christianity concerning every issue, and I mean that every issue, We're going to be Christians and slaves to the Bible in everything it teaches. It is not enough to be 90% pure. You're still 10% defiled. It's not enough to be 90% faithful. You're still 10% unfaithful. So what are we going to do? Study, because it requires study and discipline to achieve it. Members, don't confuse easy and simple. We're not going to be able to shoehorn strong theological understanding into five minutes a day. If it's all I can give God is five minutes, if all I can give God is five minutes, then I better go back to my schedule and find more time. Because God deserves more than five minutes. Or a 15 minute sermon once a week. If all I can manage is to come and hear me rant and rave for 30 minutes a week, then I'll be honest with you, I'm not going to grow. I'm just not. It's not enough. The reason why we meet so often is because the church needs to meet so often. Our tradition isn't wrong about that. We meet all the time because we need to, be, we need to hear the Word all the time. Look, the chilling fact of this teaching is that the church is on a hunger strike from the Word of God. Churches everywhere, not just this one. Churches everywhere have just simply decided that they only need so much. And what they're really doing is starving themselves to death. And I'm afraid they're going to find it out at the Bema Seat or the Great White Throne of Judgment that they should not have pushed back from the table when they did. That they should have been there. (coughs) The more we pour over the Word of God, the more it is preached and the more we study, the more sincere and refined our beliefs will become. harder we work, the better we'll be at Christ. Paul's final goal for himself and his preaching in, in Corinth was according to his words in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-23. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Ultimately, we preach the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in every aspect. Why give faithfully? Because Jesus was crucified. Why come faithfully? Because Jesus was crucified. Why be here every time? Because Jesus was crucified. Why turn your back on the world? Because Jesus was crucified. The answer to every single problem that holds us back, every obstacle is Jesus was crucified for our sins. He suffered and died to set me free. Now live free. Rejecting both false approaches, Paul relies on the simple preaching of the simple gospel. Don't confuse this with a powerless, vulgar, or modest faith. There's nothing like that. Unpretentious in its openness to human hearts, the real gospel is a declaration of the scope of the power of the living God to transform hearts and minds with the truth. What the real gospel is, the real gospel broke down the walls of Jericho. And the real gospel will break down the walls of hearts right now. It tears down strongholds. That's what it does. Look at students of scripture. We're back and look at two aspects, two aspects of this the cup and the wine which filled it. And I don't want to look at both of them as we, uh, as we take on that idea where Jesus said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. You know, that, that word translated here is divided, is diamerizo. And it means, it's kind of unique to Luke. It means to cleave in pieces as by a butcher. Literally, take a carcass and chop it up into pieces. Or, to distribute evenly. Literally, He took that cup, and He said to those disciples, Share this evenly among you. Everybody gets a share. Now, standing in the shadow of those men virtually all of which died for the glory of God, is the church. And as they took a share, so did we. And if you go back and you trace the development of the early church, everywhere they went the church grew. So the tendrils of the twelve go out to the world. The world is the legacy of this cup right here. I mean a world after the heart of God, that which has been claimed by Jesus. So, the cup has two purposes. Quickly, one, the cup represents the suffering of Christ for the sins of his people. Mark 10, 38 through 39. You know, the, the Boranerges, they ask, Lord, let's, you know, one on the right and one on the left. And his response is, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, said to him, we, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Now look, the language that Jesus uses here preserved by Mark reveals the fact that Jesus was not looking for them to say yes. He really wanted them to say no, I am not able to do this. But they were so full of themselves as people are. They were so full of them in vigor that they just, yes, of course we are. Christ requested a negative response and a positive one. They weren't supposed to callously or greedily accept the cup that Christ offered, because his cup was the cup of divine wrath. The cup of Psalms 75.8. For the hand of the Lord there is a excuse me, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Look on the cross, Christ literally figuratively and theologically drank the cup of the wrath of God so that redemption could be ours through His death because Christ judiciously became guilty of our sins. He drank this cup because He became guilty of everything you and I would ever do. Every single sin of the entire human race, Christ paid for on the cross. Every single one. Christ's death. Sufficient for the sins of the entire world. The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In taking upon the cup, He literally, in the eyes of God, became guilty at that moment of every sin. The disciples would be unable to bear the sins of the cup. But they would share as all believers do. As he said, you're going to share in the cup. But they would share as all believers do in the afflictions of fellowship with the Son of God. Paul instructs us in 2 Timothy one eight: Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Look, as believers today, the Scriptures call us to embrace suffering for the gospel. I know, suffering is always a difficult topic. Some of us have suffered for the glory of God. Some of us have just suffered. Others have just suffered for the glory of God. Suffering is always painful. It always tears you to the bone. It's never pleasant. Whether it's sickness or it's fear, it's attack, it's gossip. Whatever it is, it always hurts. And hurts deeply. But today the call is to suffer along with the saints of God for the glory of God. For you to find your share. Look, suffering seldom comes to the pew dweller, not gospel suffering. If all I'm willing to give to God is a seat in His house once in a while, I'm not going to suffer very much. There's suffering still in life, understand that. But suffering for the glory of God? No. Claim your suffering today. Suffering always torments the believer who strikes out in faith for the gospel. The challenge today is for you to strike out in faith. Despite the obstacles, despite what might overcome you, despite what you're afraid of, strike out in faith today. So I'm going to remind you of this. All is not darkness. With true redemption comes Suffering. But the work of Christ, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, opens to us the great Earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God. The union of the believer with the Holy Spirit. What is so great about being able to come in and talk about suffering is the fact that you do not suffer unaccompanied. You do not suffer without backup. You do not suffer without power. Because the fact of the matter is, there's power dwelling within the body of believers today that they simply cannot imagine. The church must stop thinking they're powerless because the fact of the matter is, nothing overcomes us. Do you understand that? you understand that? The gates of hell cannot overcome the spirit-dwelled church. Two, Christ promised not to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes, associates this verse with the broad realization of the kingdom of God on earth. Now, back in Luke 17, our Lord explains that the kingdom of God was not what the Pharisees expected, but the worldwide proclamation of the gospel by way of the church, as we've talked about many times. God's plan for winning the loss to Christ is the church. That is plan A, and there's no plan B. If you want to win the loss of Africa or Asia or China, it is the task of the church. The Lord preaches in Mark thirteen ten: The gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Look, the Pharisees expected a conquering Messiah. What they got was a Messiah whose truth would be preached around the globe. Literally, Christ teaches back in 17, 17 20 through 21 being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is going to flourish in us, before it's revealed through us. It's going to flourish inwardly before it's seen outwardly. You're not going to show up someday and take a picture of the kingdom of God. Now first off, I'm going to tell you this, the context denies the notion that the antecedent of you in this verse is the Pharisees. He's not talking to them. He's talking beyond them. He's talking to those who are really listening. And I, I, I don't know this but I, I can understand how. They would be asking the question, but the ears of those who are in Christ would perk up waiting for the answer. Those fools happened to answer, ask the right question. And they got an answer they could never grasp. But there was a farmer or a fisherman or a tax collector standing out there who knew Christ deeply and passionately and personally. And you know what? They heard this and they realized exactly what he meant by that. They saw their future and what he had to say. They saw it. The cup, which was divided, contained the true new wine. Back to wine. The response to the allegation, which would be cast against the Holy Spirit's power at Pentecost, when the crowds said in Acts 2.13, they are filled with new wine. They're supposed to be drunk. They weren't drunk. It was early in the morning. What was going on? They were filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul warns the church in Ephesians 5.18, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Among them, in their hearts, indwelled by the Holy Spirit, is found the kingdom of God. That's that use of the word in the midst, intos, meaning inside or within. Look, there's nothing inside of us naturally occurring that helps the kingdom, or glorifies God. Nothing. Our hearts are wicked, desperate, and sick. And you must not follow them. Whatever you do, do not follow your heart. Ever. Heart is not the instrument that we're to follow. The Holy Spirit fills new hearts of believers, enabling us to be different people. We don't follow the heart, we follow God. We don't follow the heart, we follow Christ. Paul commends to us this deep truth when he writes in Romans 8-9, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. So that for what matters is not the thoughts and intentions of a heart that are wicked all the time, but what matters is that that heart is indwelled by the living God. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The Spirit of God alive and evident in the people of Christ is the Old Testament and New Testament realization of the kingdom. The work of the Holy Spirit visible in you and I. And look, it begins in worship, but it does not commence when the the instruments stop. It is hypocritical if it begins in worship and ends at the end of the song. It is life-changing if it begins in worship and it commences and it commences at the end of your life. The cup is divided because we all must bear its marks. Our lives must indicate to the world the truth of the gospel, the gravity of sin, the suffering of Christ, the indwelling of the Spirit, and the adoption of the believer for the world to see the glory of God in the church. Here's the last question, and then I'm finished. I have to ask you, is Christ in us a bright light of hope or a flickering, dying spark? Which is He? Today, you have a question to answer. And I pray that you answer it now.